Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host tonight, Shante Charles. I hope that you're having a great and wonderful day. Listen, with all that is happening in the world, I just want to uh, encourage you to encourage someone else in these trying times, in these difficult times um, that we are living in. And I thought today about um, all of the things that have been happening in terms of these trials and things of that nature. And the one thing that I want, um, especially black Americans right now to know is joy in and of itself for us. Joy is a sacred form of resistance and that you don't want to allow the arbiters of racism to win over your soul, to have control over your soul. Um, And that can happen um, due to bitterness that can creep into your heart. And so one thing that I'm encouraging people to do in this moment and in in this time is to find something that brings you joy. Find something that brings you joy and engage in that thing. Doesn't mean that you ignore what's happening in our society, but you have to do what will help you um, have control over what you can control in this moment. Right? So I wanted to say that also. Um, also wanted to let you all know that I do have uh, some specials going on right now, which I will put on the uh, YouTube site in the comments. And I will also um, put them on the in the comments for the podcast. Um, but we do have some specials going on. I, I have a special with our merch store um, for 10% off of everything on the site. And then also I just dropped a course last night. And people are already um, signing up for it. And that course is on um, God Ideas, God Ideas.thinkific.com. Um, and the course is entitled Soul Freedom. It is a course that I have um, already shared and taught and gone through with an inaugural group of students through that course. And we have covered. 26 different components that we looked at that deals with um, getting free of elements that are trying to control your life and to control your soul and to control your ability to move forward. And so a lot of people tend to message me and ask me for meeting time, for coaching and, and things of that nature. Well, now I have a on-demand course, which is actually me teaching uh, 32 different lessons that I believe know, and I know they work because I've utilized them myself and I've taken the time uh, to apply them to my own life. And so I know that what I've taught works and is transformative. So if you're interested um, in that course, I will drop it into the description tonight on the YouTube channel, as well as the podcast. So I did want to let you all know that those things are available. Tonight, we're going to jump back into our reading of Jackie Robinson. I never had it made in autobiography. Jackie has been giving us some really, really powerful lessons in how to deal with racism on many fronts and in many Um, spheres and on many levels and so tonight we are still in his chapter entitled the growing family chapter eight and we're going to continue to take a look at his life with his daughter and his son while fathers may be crazy about their sons there is something extraordinarily special about a daughter It's still the same, our relationship perhaps even deeper. 
Only I understand her better and I'm amazed at some of the crises she faced as a child and later as a young girl without letting us in on them. Everybody thought about our daughter as shy, sweet Sharon. She was shy, but not painfully so. We felt guilty because we let our interest in the boys consume us. Rachel had been brought up with the same family pattern, a girl in the middle of two boys. She was the busy, loving, but not necessarily always happy mainstay of her family who took care of her younger brother. With a kind of grim amusement, I recall our assumption that Sharon was strong enough to cope well with whatever she was confronted with. We took her development for granted for many years. She rarely signaled distress or called attention to her problems by being dramatic. We didn't know that much about Sharon's problems in childhood until she reached adolescence. And then she began to let us know by rebelling and refusing to do certain things we wanted her to do. Love for her family was still there even when she became a determined young rebel. But she let us know in no uncertain terms that she too had strong desires to be an individual and to be accepted as such. Her smooth progress in school had helped to deceive us about her inner conflicts. Sharon remembers even as a small child that when she went into a restaurant with me, she was aware that the treatment was different and special. She too had the feeling that she was not appreciated for herself. David was about 18 months old when we moved to Stanford. I don't think anyone in the family enjoyed our new place more than he did. He was such an active, curious, adventuresome little guy. Rachel had to keep constant watch over him. The builder had left the grounds full of cavernous holes where he had dug up gravel. It looked as if the area had been bombed. It was quite a while before we could get him to grade the big holes, put topsoil over the grounds, and dredge the lake. Meanwhile, David insisted on exploring. We repeatedly warned him never to go too close to the lake or the road and not to play near the holes. He loved to put on his holster with his gun inside, mount his horse, and ride all over the territory where, of course, bad guys and hostile engines lurked. One day he disappeared for a nerve-wracking length of time. When he was finally found, he was sitting with quiet patience on the corner of a stone wall, watching for Sharon and Jackie to come home in the school bus. In spite of his warlike equipment, David was a thoughtful, sensible youngster who loved to wander in the woods. He reveled in the grandeur of nature, and he found endless fascination in the mystery of the lake. He would spend hours fishing and swimming. He was always more outgoing than Jackie, and we sensed somehow that he would not suffer the same identity crisis that his bedeviled brother from that had bedeviled his brother from babyhood. It's possible that by the time David came along, we had found some way to blunt the impact of the mixed blessing in my being a celebrity. Or maybe David was different. At any rate, with David's arrival, things began to change. A little Jackie, then six years old, and his sister Sharon, three, were as close as they could be. After David made his appearance, everything was still fine. However, when David was big enough to walk and Sharon was big enough to take care of him, she began to love mothering him. She took David over and the two of them would go off to play, ignoring Jackie totally. Jackie's sense of rejection became so obvious that I remember Rachel suggesting to Sharon that she invite her older brother along when she took the baby off to play. This didn't help much. Sharon passionately loved her baby brother, and to Jackie Jr., it must have seemed that David had taken both his parents and Sharon away from him. Jackie retaliated by criticizing the way little David was being raised. He came in the house one day and saw David playing with Sharon and her dolls. Hmm, Jackie sneered. You in here playing with dolls when you ought to be out on the front lawn playing football with the boys. David didn't say a word. He put on his hat and snowsuit and marched outside. He had been out there only a few minutes when he came back inside, blood smeared all over his face. Ray didn't know where he had been hurt or how. If he was in pain, he was doing a terrific job of hiding it, and he wasn't making the slightest attempt to wipe off the blood. But he announced to Jackie with tremendous triumph, Well, I guess you're satisfied now. 
The nursery school David was attending was all white, giving rise to his first questions about the differences between people of, people of different color and concern with inferiority. He wasn't happy about going to school because at first he had no playmates and he missed the freedom of roaming the ground. At first, David refused to dance in the rhythms class. David's teacher was perplexed. We knew he did enjoy dancing barefoot at home. What we learned from him, however, is that when he did this at school, some of the kids accused him of having dirty feet. Ray and I had an emergency conference with him and explained that there was nothing wrong with his feet. We were brown people, we explained. We reminded him that we couldn't be dirty because we took regular baths. We wouldn't wash our precious color away if we could. He was happy and reassured by this. He rejoiced in one of those precious childhood friendships with his classmate, Matthew Jameson. Matt and David were best friends. They liked being together, doing things together. One day, someone gave them a dollar. They tore it in half because they liked to share everything. David and Sharon remained very close until Dave went to a private elementary school. Sharon was afraid David was becoming a social and intellectual snob and beginning to look down on her. She didn't like the friends he had acquired. Two of his closest friends came from wealthy families in the neighborhood, people who had horses and huge estates. David dismissed Sharon's condemnation of him as an indication that she was stupid. When they tried to be friendly together playing games at the table, he would point out how stupid she was and brag that he was much smarter and caught on to things faster. Inevitably, as in every household with children, there were tensions and sometimes quarrels. But Ray and I can look back at this period of our lives as an essentially happy one. Oh, oh, oh. Who doesn't have a family, sibling, disagreement, and rival story to tell. If you're like me, <laughs> you probably have a few of them. Although what's interesting uh, is with my younger siblings that I did not grow up with in the house, um, I met my younger siblings when I think I was 11 years old. So that was the first time that I had found out that I had younger siblings. Um, but we always got along. Like we never argued, which was very interesting. Um, but my older siblings that I grew up with, um, we would often get into, I would say, a couple of skirmishes, <laughs> some knife throwing, some uh, jumping one sibling, and uh, tying him up for my mother to uh, find him when he got home. I think that was the last time he tried to, um, <laughs> I think that was the, the last time he tried to uh, raise up at his sisters and he found out the power of girl power very quickly. Um, but yeah, sibling rivalry, some sibling rivalry, some sibling squabbles, but at the end of the day, um, we definitely had this notion of you don't mess with us. Like we will have arguments and disagreements with each other when we were younger, but we didn't side with other people over our siblings. Um, and so I think that's very interesting that Jackie uh, points that out here that, you know, his uh, son David would at times side with his friends against his sister. So we're going into now the ninth chapter, which is called the ninth inning. And Jackie is going to return to telling us about his experience in the league. Two years had gone by since my stormy meeting with Walter O'Malley in 1952. Although he persisted in making irritating anti-Ricky cracks, we didn't have any trouble until we played a game in Milwaukee and our team was infuriated by a decision the umpires made. Back in our locker room, we discussed the decision we had caused Pee Wee Reese that had caused Pee Wee Reese to be thrown out of the game. The umpires could hear our conversation since their dressing room was next to ours and the walls in between were not up to the ceiling. 
Most of the Dodgers were complaining, but the next day I was the only one who received a telegram from Warren Giles, the president of the National League. I was fined $75 for making anti-umpire gestures in the dugout, which most of us had done, and for the things I had said in the locker room. I went to O'Malley and protested. He said he didn't want the matter to get out to the press and gave me the impression that he would look into it. The story did not show up in the papers, however, and although I was not responsible for it, O'Malley promptly blamed me. He stayed on my back about it. Trouble between the Dodger management and me seemed to snowball. Charlie Dressen had been manager of the Dodgers from 1951, and I had the utmost respect for him as a manager. During those three seasons, we had been in two World Series. However, the Dodger front office had a policy of giving contracts to managers only on a year-by-year basis. After the 53 season, Dressen tried to get an extended contract, but the front office would not go along with this, and he was fired. Dressen's replacement, as I said earlier, was Walter Alston. Alston and I started off on awkward footing because he had a gut conviction that I resented his having taken Dressen's job. In fact, he came to me to say he hoped I'd work as hard for him as I had for Dressen. I told him I didn't see any reason why I couldn't, but it was obvious that he could not bring himself to believe this. I tried to cooperate with Walter, who was a pretty good guy, but felt, as did others on the team, that he had a tendency to lose his cool under pressure and make boneheaded judgments during the games. Things went along fairly well until the end of 1954 season, when we began to get into minor hassles and exchange impulsive, ill-tempered words. The tension between O'Malley and me, the uncomfortable situation with Austin, the tendency of the press to always hang the rap on me whenever there was a dissension in the Dodger ranks, plus, worst of all, the fact that during 1954, the team was doing very badly, meant there was bound to be an explosion. The worst incident occurred at Wrigley Field in Chicago. Duke Snyder had hit a ball into the field, the left field seats, which bounced back onto the field. I thought that the ball had hit one of the fans. The book says that a ball like this is an automatic home run if it clears the wall. The umpire, Bill Stewart, called it a double, apparently assuming the ball had bounced off the wall. I was sure that the whole Dodger team would react as I did. I jumped up and ran from the dugout to protest. Unfortunately, None of my teammates followed me. I became suddenly and angrily aware that Walter Alston was standing at third base, his hands on his hips, staring at me sardonically. His stare seemed to say, Okay, Robinson, you've managed to let all the fans see you. Cut out the grandstand tactics and get back to the dugout. It was a humiliating moment. I realized instantly that the hothead umpire baiting label that had been applied to me so often in recent months would be brought out again. I said a few quiet words to the umpire and walked back to the dugout, feeling like a fool, even though I knew my action had been justified. Later, I became even angrier when someone said, you should have heard that Walt, what Walt said when you were out on the field, Jack. If that guy hadn't stood standing out there at third base like a wooden Indian, this club might go somewhere. Here's a play that meant a run in a tight ball game, so whether I was right or wrong, the play was close enough for him to protest to the umpire. But not Austin. What kind of a manager is that? The wooden Indian crack got around and Austin heard about it. Naturally, it made matters worse. I suppose it made him even angrier the next day when the newspapers carried the pictures of the fan who had been hit by the ball. This proved that I had been right and the umpire wrong. By the end of the 1954 season, I was getting fed up and I began to make preparations to leave baseball. I loved the game, but my experience had not been typical. I was tired of fighting the press, the front office, and I knew that I was reaching the end of my peak years as an athlete. I felt that any chance I might have had of moving up to an administrative job with the Dodgers or any other team was mighty slim. Had I been easygoing, willing to be meek and humble, I might have had a chance. 
But in fact, this has not changed much even today. There are many capable black athletes in the game who could contribute greatly as managers or in other positions of responsibility, but it just isn't happening. My only hope of finding a job which would be fulfilling as well as financially rewarding seemed to be in private industry. I liked to work and I don't want a dollar I don't earn. So I had to be certain I didn't get sucked into one of those showcase jobs where you are a token black man with no real responsibility other than window dressing. My good friend Martin Stone, a lawyer, put out feelers, and during the 1955-1956 seasons, I was constantly on the lookout for a solid opportunity. However, I'm glad in a way that I at least stayed through the 1955 season, because with all the problems I was to have, one of my greatest thrills was in store. But before that, there were troubles. During exhibition games, Alston started making me spend a lot of time on the bench. One day I would play and the next I would sit on the sidelines. There is nothing so unnerving to a player used to steady involvement than sitting on the bench. He loses confidence and his timing becomes unreliable. Being benched disturbed me to the point where I, had made, where I made the colossal mistake of asking Dick Young, the sports writer, if he had heard anything about my playing that season. Word got out that I had asked Dick the question and Walter hit the ceiling. He called a team meeting and angrily singled out the players who run to newspaper men with their problems. Alston and I got into a shouting match that seemed destined to end in a physical fight. Gil Hodges kept tacking me on, tapping me on the arm, advising me, Jack, don't say anything else. Cool down, Jack. I listened to Gil because I had a tremendous amount of respect for him. During the 1955 season, I played in approximately two-thirds of the games. My batting average was down. I was doing a poor job in comparison to past seasons. The newspapers began subtly, and some not so subtly, to refer to me as a has-been. However, despite this, the team made it into the World Series. It was the fifth series we had been in during my nine seasons with the Dodgers. We had only been in only a total of seven since 1905, and we had never won one. There was a saying in Brooklyn, which everyone has heard about the Dodgers, the bums, wait till next year. Well, here we were in our seventh World Series in 50 years, and there was hope that this would be the year. But our fans were also ready to shrug their shoulders and say, wait till next year if we lost. The way we were playing in that first game, down 6-4 and four in the 8th inning, it looked like we might have to wait. I was on third base, and I knew I might not be playing next year. There were two men out, and I suddenly decided to shake things up. It was not the best baseball strategy to steal home with our, two, our team two runs behind, but I just took off and did it. I really didn't care whether I made it or not. I was just tired of waiting. I did it. And we came close to winning that first game. Whether it was because of my stealing home or not, the team had new fire. We fought back against our old rivals, the Bronx Bombers, and the series came down to the wire in the seventh game. Padres pitched a brilliant shutout in the sixth inning with men on first and second, and only one out. Sandy Amaro saved the game with a spectacular running catch of Yogi Berra's fly ball down the left field line. It was one of the greatest thrills of my life to be finally on a World Series winner. The next year, my troubles continued. I was benched a lot. My average was down, and it was obviously time to leave the game. Two things happened that year which clinched the decision. I met Bill Black of Chop Full of Nuts. We took to each other, and negotiations began for me to become vice president in the company when I retired from baseball. Also, I was approached by Look Magazine with a very generous offer if I would give it an exclusive on my retirement story. The time was ripe. However, I was faced with a dilemma. I wanted to be fair to the Dodgers and give them notice of my plans. However, I couldn't talk to anyone about my plans because negotiations with both Look and Chalk were not concluded. 
If the story leaked to the press, I would lose out on the look story. And if the chalk negotiations broke down, I would face an insecure future with the Dodgers. It was touch and go. In the end, everything happened at once. The day before my signing date with Chalk Full of Nuts and the meeting with the look editors, Buzzy Bavese left a telephone message that he wanted to see me the next day. I sensed that something was up, so I told Buzzy's public relations man who made the call that I would be tied up the next day. I didn't want to get into a conference with Buzzy before I had sewn something up for myself. I contacted him immediately after signing the Chalk Full of Nuts contract to tell him about it. Before I could say anything, he broke the news that he'd been wanting to tell me. The Brooklyn Dodgers had traded me for $30,000 and a pitcher, Dick Littlefield, to the Giants. I was surprised and stunned. This kind of trade happens all the time in baseball, and it hurts players to realize that they can be shunted off to another club without their prior knowledge or consent. My impulse was to tell Bavese that Jackie Robinson was no longer the Dodgers' property to be traded. But I had to hold out on that because my agreement was to allow Look to be the one to break the story. I tried to persuade the Giants' front office not to announce the trade for a few days, but since I couldn't explain why, they went ahead and did it. The press practically overran our house in Connecticut, but they got very little out of me. Notes came in the mail from Bavese and O'Malley. They contained the good old regrets business. I appreciated Buzzy's note, but I didn't believe O'Malley meant the nice things he wrote. I took my family to Los Angeles to visit and to keep the press off of our backs until the look piece could be printed. Three days before the magazine hit the newsstands, however, the story was out in the press owing to the fact that a few look subscribers had received their copies early. Look frantically called us to get back into New York to face the press. The Giants offered me $60,000 in salary to reconsider. There was so much pressure from fans and youngsters for me to remain in the game that I did have some vague second thoughts. But when Bavese told the press that I was doing this to get more money out of them, I wouldn't give them a chance to tell me I told you so and my baseball career was over. Some of the writers damned me for having held out on the story. Others felt it was my right. Personally, I felt that Bavese and some of the writers resented the fact that I had outsmarted baseball before baseball had outsmarted me. The way I figured it, I was even with baseball and baseball with me. The game had done much for me and I had done much for it. That's what you call out by the hair of your chinny chin chin. Um, recognizing when it is your time to end. Um, not being uh, past your time and past your prime. For people to, as he said, trade you like property. And having other options and making sure you have other options so that you don't feel, um, how shall we say, backed into a corner with offers that don't necessarily benefit you fully, but they benefit people who don't even like you. So when we jump back into this book next week, we'll be in the second half of this book called After the Ball Game. What is Jackie doing with his life after that? I want to go ahead and share with you some images that Jackie Robinson chose for his book. So let's take a look at those now and then I will open it up for response. This is Jackie on the track team at UCLA in 1940. This from the uh, National Baseball Library. He's got several in here. Throwing a pass for a UCLA football team and him being a former lieutenant in the U.S. Army when he signs with the Montreal Royals. Let's see. Exhibiting his slugging form while trying out for the Montreal Club, floor, um, club at the Florida training camp. And when he's signing with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I'll bring those a little bit closer. 
so you all can see. That's a nice one. <laughs> Arguing with the umpire during a game against the Giants, September 1952. Yeah, getting up in the face. <laughs> Caught by Braves first baseman Frank McCormick, September 7, 1948. Didn't quite make it that time. Him and his colleagues, Johnny Jorgensen, Pee Wee Reese, Eddie Stanky, and Jackie himself. Nice shot of Jackie. In uniform. And lastly, oh no, a couple more. Um, this one is at his home in Stanford, Connecticut with Governor Nelson Rockefeller and also him chatting with um, Martin Luther King before a press conference in New York. Yeah. Joining picketers outside the construction site of Downstate Medical Center, they were protesting against anti-Negro discrimination in hiring at the site. So he did join some protests. And the last page here is him being inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1962. And this is with Branch Rickey, Jackie, Rachel Robinson, and Mally Robinson, Jackie's mother. All right. So if you would like to comment on Jackie's ninth inning, or his relationship with his children and recognizing uh, the needs of his children, you can feel free to join me. If you have intentions to join, just let me know in the comment section. Um, but I'm motivated. I am definitely motivated by the last chapter. And, and one of those motivations is knowing when to hold them, knowing when to fold them, and knowing when to walk away. When what you're doing is no longer serving your life. <laughs> uh, this year I've had to walk away from a lot of things that, that don't serve my life. To um, free up my time and, and to create the curriculum and the programs that I want to see occurring. Uh, Lady Barbara, I saw your request, but then it popped off. So if you're planning to come in, let me know. So it's um, that's the encouragement for me um, to know when it is time and to be discerning enough um, to not let people use you up, use you up, use you up until you have nothing left of yourself to give. You have no energy left to give to future projects. You have no energy left to give to your family. Right. You, you're just kind of on the grind, on the grind, on the grind. Good evening, Lady Barbara. Good evening. How are you? I'm fantastic. I, I didn't get all of everything that I didn't, but I like the part because you mentioned something about before, about Ether Ray, and the part was like moving in silence. Mm -hmm. And so I like that part because... He had other things lined up before ending his career, and they they had they were planning their strategy to move into another team, mm -hmm. and not knowing that he already had chock full of nut. Chock full of nut used to be some good coffee too. 
and um and look magazine so he had he had things lined up to carry him on because he was i was listening to as you were reading he was saying he didn't want to end up being tokenism and taken into certain places as just window dressing, you know. So I thought that was so powerful that he had things lined up. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of it was he said they had started to say he's a has been mm-hmm. and it's over. So he knew, you know, when it was time to move on. And just to think about going back how people he was gifted and Mm -hmm. he was a talented baseball player Mm -hmm. he also played football but to think about when he was saying he was benched for like two-thirds of those games which would keep take you out of rhythm so that was like purposely set up to more like sabotage your career Mm. And to start the buzzword of saying, yeah, well, you know, he'd lost it. So mm-hmm. it was just, you know, to think about, you know, all the things that he was a trailblazer, but all the things that he went through to get there, what the what especially Jackie had mm-hmm. to go through being the oldest and the environment and then looking at David, how he was able to adjust you know, more so mm-hmm. and and go through certain things, but just being, and maybe it was because he had the two older ones there and he knew how to, you know, well, he loved his sister and they had a good relationship. So he kind of just knew how to move around with people. Yeah. I, I think to me, it shows the, the varying personalities of his children too. Mm-hmm. And understanding that each child is going to have its own personality and and the way that you raise one child may not work for your other children because of their disposition or because of their abilities right or because of the environment um Uh that they're growing up in like each one of his children had some slight variations to their environment because of their moving around. So all of their children weren't getting the same environmental experience either too. So that, that is something um, to think about, but going back to what you said about, you brought up a really good point just then about how Jackie was labeled a has been, but there were some underlying things that were kind of moving that label along, uh-huh. giving uh-huh. you less play time, right? Yeah. Um, your your teammates no longer really coming to agree with what you agree with in terms of who's mm-hmm. right and who's wrong on the field. Like he said, uh-huh. he ran out there <laughs> yeah. to protest something on behalf of the team. But he looked back and the team wasn't with him. And I think that's powerful in, even in, in and of itself of are you aware, right, of when people's, people have decided to withdraw their support from you? Are you aware um, or are you paying attention enough to see when people's um, support of you is waning like he's talking about it because he's he's becoming aware he's he's showing us by his words that he's aware that the support is waning and as that support wanes and as you know more players at that point were coming into the league it became less necessary for them to keep him there because he had quote unquote accomplished what they set out to accomplish through him. And the person that um, brought him along and believed in him had left that club anyway. So it was like, now that the person who brought you in to start this, this revolution is gone. We don't really see the value in what you brought to the team. We don't, we don't really see it. Um, so all of that is some good lessons to kind of just dig into, like, 
Do you have the do you have the support? Um, yeah, yeah, and and when you realize that you're gonna be consistently scapegoated as the person, right? Like he said, he got tired of fighting. Yes, and it's okay to recognize that tiredness. It's okay to recognize. Um, and, and I forgot who said it, but early uh, last week I was reading a post where a friend of mine was saying, we often say to people, don't give up, never give up, don't quit. <laughs> but, but there are some things you do need to quit. There are some things that sometimes you do have to walk away from and say, you know, my part in this, my journey in this is gone. It's over, it's done, it's served its purpose. Um, and another friend of mine posted, you know, learn how to let's practice the art of leaving a situation and walking away from a situation without demonizing who we walked away from. Exactly. And who exactly. and how we ended that relationship. So it didn't have to be, you know, like he moved on. He didn't do a whole like bash piece on how horrible everybody was. And he said, I'm going to save that. <laughs> For my autobiography. I'm going to tell it all. I'm going I'm to take my pain. I'm going to take my pain and make it rain. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Exactly. I'm not going to give it. I'm not going to give it to you in the press. For the press yeah, to benefit it, it, from it. Yeah, and twist right and twist my words, but I'm going Uh to I am going to express what happened, but I don't have to completely demolish and tear you down and tear down the organization. Mm -hmm. This is my story. This is my perspective, and like he said, I had a good run with baseball. I felt I felt like right. Uh huh. He said, I'm, I'm going to go back to his words. <laughs> he, uh-huh. he said, where is it? He said, I was, e- he said, I was even, he said, I was even uh-huh. with baseball and baseball was uh-huh. even with me. The game had done much for me and I had done much for it. So do we know when to call it even in our life? Jesus. Do we know when to call it even or do we stay in situations trying to milk it or do we allow situations to milk us to the point where when we leave, we don't have anything else to offer anyone else because we are either too tired, (laughs) too wore out. Mentally wore out or mentally incapacitated or physically incapacitated uh, to the point where we can't do anything else beyond that one thing. Uh. And I appreciate, I so, so appreciate his life, especially being a descendant, because there's so many lessons that he's packed in here about, about needing to. Number one, tell your own story. Exactly. I was talking to, um, uh, who was it today? Larry Reed live, right? He's getting ready to release his, his part one. I think of his documentary series on his life is coming out tonight on both YouTube and I think Facebook, uh-huh. but I said to him, congratulations to you because you are telling your own story. And you're telling it while you're alive and while you have the ability to own your own story and own creative control over how you want your image to be perceived. Exactly. Because so many people wait until they are no longer here. And then someone else is in control of your image. They're in control of your story. They're in control of your, your mind and your thoughts. That's why I'm glad for these conversations, the podcast, the YouTube, the, uh, IG. I'm glad for these because should I depart this earth, 
there's enough footage <laughs> where people know what I thought, how I felt, you know, and, and there's enough evidence of who I was. Yes. Foot, you know, foot, uh, footprinted uh, in the earth. And so I congratulated him and I said, you know, hats off because you are choosing to tell your story while you're still alive to have input and creative control over how you're seen in the earth. Same thing with um, the King Richard film, right? With Venus and Serena. Venus Uh and Serena are the executive producers. Their father is still living. So the people who have the creative control over that image, over that storytelling, they are all still alive. It's not like they're all dead and somebody else is coming up with this story. No, this is how they chose to tell the story and how they chose to present their father. And people should respect and honor that, even though we have people who are not doing that. The reality is this is how they want to portray their father. Yes. And you know what? saying that the, another artist that passed away and I heard somebody say they was talking about doing more documentaries they done the, they said let that person rest you have used it and just twisted and you want to keep telling all these <laughs> stories the person is gone when are you going to just let it go you did movies you've done all these different stories over and over so how long are you going to milk this gravy train yeah 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 and even with jackie he he put out his own movie about himself and starred in his own movie way before chadwick's version and even with that version they had to get rachel robinson's permission he sat down with her and met with her so again it wasn't just a arbitrary um, uh-huh. portrayal of him. Uh-huh. And so I think that too is something um, that we can just, we can learn. Um, yes. You don't have to stay in a place if you're making the right decisions moving forward, right? If you're planning for your future, you don't have to just take what's being handed to you. Yeah. And it's okay to move on. Uh-huh. It's okay to call it even uh-huh. and move on to um, something else, you know. So, yeah. final thoughts, Lady Barbara? I, I'm just loving Jackie Roberts and his truth and his story. I, I really am because a lot of things we know he went through a lot, but the, tr- the story that he left. And on his own, in his own writing, his own experience, could nobody else tell it the way he's telling it because he lived it. So I just appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. His life. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate it because we often, um, we often in this country anyway, discount the experiences of black men and maybe from this one, maybe cause I also have um, Richard Wilson's autobiography, Serena Williams, the, the, the Venus and Serena's father's autobiography. I have that as well. And the film is supposed to be based on parts of that autobiography, the one he wrote. So we may start reading that next because he, I love us. <laughs> I love us, but we have a tendency to sometimes allow this society to say that the voices and experiences of of black men in particular are not really should be elevated. Uh And I understand that as a black woman, I want us to have our place in society. Exactly. At the same time, I am not willing to say our place in society should supersede our counterpart. Amen. Uh-huh. I'm not I'm not with that program. I'm just not. No. 
Um, I believe we need to hear black men tell their experiences. And I believe we need to hear black women tell their experiences. So um, thank you, Lady Barbara. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. I appreciate you. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues. And I've been your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I want to thank you for your time and your attention. If you came in late, please hit the replay. Um, I did share some some information at the start about some deals that I have. Um, the Soul Freedom curriculum. Those of you, Lady Barbara uh, was an alumni of our first uh, round of teaching. That is now a on-demand course um, because great. I wanted to open it up to more people. People are usually messaging me, asking me, hey, do you have time to coach me? And so this is my opportunity to coach you on demand. You get 32 <laughs> sessions with me um, for under $100. And I believe it's worth it. I believe that. I believe it's worth it. And I believe that's a fair and reasonable price for what you're getting. Um, and what you're getting, really, I can't put a price on it. Because the lessons were transformative. I'm still using the the truth that was unraveled through that series. And so it is uh, 26 lessons on concepts and calls to action, things that you can do to get free within your soul. We often talk about our goals and our dreams, but if our soul isn't right, I'm telling you, you're going to you're going to wind up putting your goals and your dreams on hold to get your soul right. And so I'm inviting you through this course to do the soul work so that you're ready to manifest your goals and your dreams at a completely different level. So um, I am available um, through that program. There's some, like I said, there's um, the ability to contact me during the program as you're going through the lessons on your own. Um, but I believe that it is going to transform the way that you think. It will transform the way that you do life. It will transform you internally. And in turn, you're going to see a transformation happen around you with the people that you come into contact with and how you deal with life in general. So I invite you to um, connect and join that course. I will leave the link for it in the comment section for the podcast as well as YouTube. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues and I've been your host tonight, Lady Barbara. Thank you for uh, co-hosting and sharing your insights. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So continue to go out and be what? Be light. Be light. Thank you again for your time and attention. Thank you, Lady uh, Stephanie, also on YouTube, part of our We Dare squad. Take care, everyone, and God bless. God bless.